You're listening to the Cast Iron Theatre Podcast. I'm Michelle Donkin. Andrew isn't here today, so I thought I'd introduce a podcast this week. Again, didn't go too badly last week, thought I'd give it another go. In this episode, we're chatting to Roger and Lauren from the Rialto Theatre. We're talking about what makes a good story, creating work that you're passionate about, and the highs and lows of running your own venue. It was wonderful to catch up with Roger and Lauren and great to hear about their plans for the coming year. So I hope you enjoy. Let's have a listen. Bye. What makes a good story? Well, you're both, well that's, an interesting, that's an interesting thing. So I'll, I, let's lead up to that thing because you both kind of looked at one another as if the other person was better equipped to answer that question. So, Roger, why is Lauren better equipped to answer that question? She's written stories that have been performed um, at um, a higher level than me, I would say. Um, And I think Lauren is professionally trained in the creative industry in a way that I'm not. So they would be arguments for her being better equipped to answer their question. That's fair enough. That, 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 that's a, an entirely appropriate answer. Lauren, why is Roger better equipped to say what a good story is? I think Roger's had quite a lot of experience now um, directing. Um, he's done quite a lot of producing. So the actual... I would say he's stronger at the sort of start-to-finish process from choosing a script to auditions to all of the admin aspect of it to getting it over the line to getting it on to getting all of the posters and the flyers he's much more organised than I am in that respect whereas I'm more of in, in more of in a little bubble with my story and the other stuff you're better at making that happen yeah than I, think, I think you're verging into the what makes a good producer with an answer mm. um, for me what's a good story is something that engages with people something that makes people want to learn more yeah you, you come in with an idea and you and you leave with more than you than you came in with and you and you you want to discuss it you want to talk about it you want to feel about it if, if, if either you're it's made you angry if it's made you emotional if it's, you want it to make you feel something so that's yeah that's what I would class as a good story so we've kind of already um touched on this already in that answer uh, but here's my first uh, question really which is both simple and terrifying for both of you who are you and what do you do well i'm roger um i'm one of the directors at the rialto i'm also one of the co-founders of pretty villain which is an independent production company um and um Lauren, to my left, is the other co-founder of both of those entities, and what I do is um, run the Rialto venue to the best of my ability, help to curate our fringe, which is the jewel and the crown of our year when it comes to all things theatrical. Um, um, as a co-founder of Pretty Villain, I produce shows. I we usually direct one at Brighton Fringe as well. Um, Lauren does more for more than that. Mm, I mean, yeah, I, you know, I direct as well. Um, obviously, having just written 
a one-woman show, having performed that for the first time, sort of taking it to Edinburgh, was very terrifying. But I never having done a one-woman show before. I just, you know, all about one-woman one-woman shows. Um, and it's just been a great learning curve, a learning experience. It's a completely different animal from, you know, doing, you know, picking up an amazing script by Pinter or something and, 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 and riding with that. You've, being a performer, a writer, and self-directing, you're up against those three criticisms rather than just as a performer or as a writer or as a director. You know, you've got that whole pressure cooker on top of you, which I've never had before. So let's just dig into that, because as you say, it's a new experience for you. The idea that um, not only are you writing a solo show uh, and not only are you um, performing it yourself, uh, but you're also directing your own performance, how lonely or not is that? It, it's, there were times when it was incredibly lonely and once that happens self-doubt creeps in fear creeps in am I good enough all these negative yeah. questions um, you know I have had a really good support network so if I'm thinking if I'm trying something in terms of being on stage and it's just not not working I didn't have the luxury of having a director it's not like oh I want to self-direct this in an ideal world I'd have had a director but I just didn't have that opportunity this time around so it was just right okay just to the best of my ability, just go with it. Um, but luckily when I could bring people in and they'd have suggestions and then, you know, I was always open to that. It, was, it wasn't like, this is my baby, step away yeah. from it. Um, sometimes I was a bit like that. You're very protective of your own work. Um, so there's input and then there's interference. So it's finding, it's finding that, that balance. We're going to be speaking um, during this uh, conversation about what the reata is and how much it's producing work and bringing in work, but that's a really interesting point in terms of the relationship between the producer, the writer, the director, a potential audience, people who will um, give feedback or are invited to give feedback in the early stages of a show or a piece of work. Um, what's, what's the best way to give feedback? Not to take it, but how to, what's the best way to give it? What do you enjoy or what benefits you when somebody's giving you feedback? Mm, good question. Probably the most beneficial for me is not sort of giving me loads of opinions, but asking me questions. What about if you tried this in that bit? What about if you tried that rather than that? What would that do? If you stretch this, if you took that out, does that bit need that bit in it? Yeah. What would it do? So it's lots of questions which makes me think, rather than telling me, yeah. you know, I thought you should have done this. I don't find that helpful. No. It's asking me the question, so I have to go back to the drawing board and rediscover and then try it. I much prefer working like that. And I guess the old cliche is true of if um, six people are confused by a story beat, they are probably right even if it's one of your favourite moments. Exactly, and I will absolutely listen to that. You can't, I've, I've learned you can't have an ego about it yeah. because then it's only ever going to be one thing. It's never going to grow or develop. Yeah. So you've got to be open to that. So let's ask you both about uh, what the Riata is. If we happen not to have known that, if we rocked up at Brighton Station and we're looking for um, a, a venue to uh, see a performance in, What's what is the USP of the Riata? Um, 
we are an independent entity. Um, we, um, it, it is a boutique venue, I believe. It's one where um, it's not a, just a question of somebody coming in and watching a performance and then leaving. We want people to have a holistic experience. And that holistic experience starts with coming to the front door, having a welcome, uh, coming into the bar, uh, people being friendly, people and and the audience member feeling the, the most comfortable there, um, and being invited to stay afterwards, um, and possibly chat to other people who've been in the audience or people who've been involved in the show, um, or indeed members of the press. Um, I think whether that's a USP, but it, it's certainly coming on for it. Right? See, there's certainly a sense of it's a, a thing that I've mused on in my head at the time, at, at times, about how much of a of a sanctuary a particular venue can and can't be, sure. so that one, and by one I mean an audience member, is less potentially aware of the company that's putting the work on, but they are aware of the venue that oh, I went to that place before, that was good. I'll go and take a punt mm. on this show that I don't actually know the cast of. Mm. I think from our point of view at the Rialto, I think the time of the year that's definitely true is the Fringe. Yeah. Definitely true. Um, outside the Fringe, I'm not sure that that is true at the moment, at this point in our, in our progress. Yeah. I think that other venues in Brighton have that, have that safety aspects, shall we say. Um, for us, I believe we have... A, a reputation for quality at Brighton Fringe. Um, I believe that we have a reputation for risk taking as well. Um, that I, I want to follow that uh, rabbit hole for a moment. But Lauren, you were about to say something as well about when you saw the Oh yeah, when I, I think just going back to the whole USB thing that before we even opened our doors in 2014. You know, we had many a conversation. We sat down, had all these ideas and all these brainstorming meetings and things. Some ideas worked, some didn't, but that's the whole point of it. But one thing we all agreed on, which was people coming to the Rialto for for an experience to see a show, and you know, like you like you said, it's there's six people in this play. I have no idea what the play is. I don't know who these people are, but it's at the Rialto, so it's going to be good. So this was always we always wanted to get to a good curating stage at the venue and I think we are absolutely on the right path of doing that you know and we can we can do that now when our doors first opened no one knew who the hell we were so now we've got to a point where we can look at shows and go that's not fit for our venue so because we know it better than anybody Um, and that's not because say that show's not any good it's just to say it's going to be better suited somewhere else and we we will communicate that with companies because you know we're not trying to shaft anybody that definitely leads into something I want to get into later about what is a Riato show even if the, the show itself is not being produced by the Riato but uh, I want to follow on that line about risk what's what what is risky in theatre what and how much of that a negative and a positive thing what, what's what is risk I think I think there's different aspects to risk um, an office example of risk is the new writing um, no, but it, 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 if somebody is, if something is performed on stage for the first time, necessarily an audience has, has just never seen that before. 
and that first time that you're ever going to get that feedback, and that's something that people really that's very good about. But audience feedback is the first time that it's really performing in, in the flesh. Um, so new writing is a big part of where we believe we're at, and we hold an annual festival, which has just happened, hasn't it? Just it's happened like, yeah. these scratch nights before, which we understand. Uh, our, our good friends Luke and Pip from Unmasked Theatre run that for us, but um, we believe we understand it to be the biggest scratch event outside of London in the southeast of England. We understand that to be the case, um, and every year. The really nice thing about the scratch event, just to go on about that for a second, is that um, at least one show is taken forward to the Brighton Fringe. So there, there is that journey that we're able to offer. And just to clarify that, if I understand correctly, that's literally a, a, a for want of a better word, a, a prize from you. You you will take a show, a piece of new writing from Scratch Night, and get that to the fringe the following year. Indeed, it's, it's produced by Unmasked Theatre. We, as Rialto, offer it a, a, a good, if not prime slot at Brighton Fringe, and there's no cost to the writer of that show. Um, it, is, it is produced by the New Group, and it's, it's a good prize. Um, and other, other aspects of this, though, would be, um, so there are generic forms of theatre which, which are going to pour broadly to the masses. There are popular writers like Oscar Wilde and Arthur Miller, all these foolish people that we know about, but there's, but there's equally people out there who would appeal to a niche. And if we decide to, to give a voice to a niche piece, which we do at the Fringe in particular, um, that is necessarily a risky product because not everyone's going to like it. And, and we, we have to take a decision that some audience members are going to be left on the pavement. Yeah. Lauren, what, what, yeah, what, what is risky theatre? And it, again, is it mm. always a positive or negative thing? Mm. I mean, yeah, I, I agree with what Roger just said about all of that. And I, I think when I hear risk in theatre, it's, I think of the word controversial. And again, I, I, I so, put that into the same paragraph because I'm trying not to put too much of my own opinion in this question, certainly before you've asked it, before you've answered it. But sometimes I'll see in a listing or a billing, oh, it's, this is controversial, or this is risk, and my gut response sometimes go, is it controversial, or are you just saying fuck quite a lot? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so that, that's kind of, I guess, my, my prejudice or my intent yeah. behind that question about what is risk, what is controversial, yeah. and is it good or bad? Uh, yeah, I think, like you said there, people just, yeah, people are just on stage swearing and getting naked. Um, for me, that that's cheap, and I think that's shock value, and I don't think that's necessarily theatre. I think that's um, unless, unless there's some innate purpose. Unless, to that. unless it's absolutely necessary. I guess there's, there's certainly a place for it. if you yeah. are choosing deliberately to make your audience feel uncomfortable, or mm. you are being eroticised about it, whatever. Then that, that's got a place. Yeah, and I think you have to be careful with making your audience yeah. feel uncomfortable and making them feel unsafe. That's interesting, because that's a distinction, yeah. those are two different things. Yeah, yeah. completely, and I've, I've experienced both, um, and I've experienced both as an audience member and as a performer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've had abuse thrown at me because of the controversial subject matter that, I've, that I chose, um, but I didn't do it, I didn't do it because it was easy. I wanted there to be a risk factor because I believed in the subject matter, I wanted to explore that subject matter. 
Um, so let's um, follow that slightly. I guess that the the predictable question is then why? Why did you want to pursue that subject matter? Why did you want to ask those questions? Uh, we, should, I, we should clarify, it will be in the uh, bio as well, but we're talking about uh, a piece of work that you did uh, last year called Myra, mm, that Myra yeah. and um, discussing, um, am I right in, in saying that it's taken from her, her own words yeah. uh, from recordings, and so that's obviously going to be challenging for many audience members. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and I think... I mean, one of the main reasons behind why I wanted to do it is I personally, I wanted to understand what makes people do what they do, especially something as grotesque and horrific as that, and I just couldn't get my own head around it. And by exploring it and, and pulling it apart and learning more about her, I learnt that nothing is ever really black and white, and I think that the stage is a great platform to explore these thoughts and get an audience to, and to ask the audience to explore it with you rather than you know coming in with a preconceived idea and then the biggest achievement for me was when these people were leaving and they changed their mind or they were talking about it and it wasn't you know there's quite a lot of arguments in the bar there's quite a lot of discussions afterwards because people were actually no she I didn't I think you know I, it was a debate and that's what I wanted so that was a great achievement for me if I, if I can just jump in on that mm. question, it's your show, of course, but I saw it last time, so I was very involved with it at the times. Um, it's easy to pitch and hold people. Um, it's easy to, it, I mean, not, it, from, from any, any walk of life. And, but nobody's ever just one thing. Now, we all, uh, now uh, I think some of your audience here may not even know who Marianne was, but um, uh, she was a horrible child abusing serial killer. Um, and probably there's a special place in hell for her. But she was more than that. She was, she was abused by her partner. Um, she was beaten by her parents. Um, and there's no apologies being made for her, or the things that she did. But if you're looking for reasons why people do such horrible things, maybe it's important to look at the background. Um, who knows, we might be able to understand is that something to avoid happening again? So it becomes uh, about the theatre being less of a, of a narrow search and being like a possible mirror to, as you say, a preventative, because then, it, because then we're not allowed, to, we don't have the permission to absolve ourselves of potential mm. responsibility in the future. Yeah, and I think that it's important to, to ask the audience not to say, right, this is how I'm betraying her and this is what you need to feel. So the floor is yours, actually. The audience are actually the cast, if you like, because it's, you're asking them to... What do you think? I'm not saying this. I'm not saying this, and I'm not saying this. It's what do you think? It's getting your audience to work because that's what they're there to do. I think the audience, theatre audiences, they want to, they want to think, they want to dissect. You know, I really do believe that. So, what, what is uh, what is your theatre um, here to do? You know, the Riato is um, one, one part producing, one part um, buying uh, shows. Uh, what, what are the percentages? Is it, is it more your, your own work, homegrown work, or is it more...? I think, I, think, uh, I think Laura and I will probably have a different answer, but for me, we started uh, Pretty Villain, and we've been reasonably successful in that, and um, uh, as you guys know, we, we did a production of Crucible and hired an, an old church back in the fringe 2014, and we felt that there was more to come from us as a company and we felt that one of the things that was going to hold us back in the future was not having 
our own venue or our own the sanctuary, if you will. Um, and we believe that um, we would be able to offer something to the city of Brighton. Um, it's not been easy, but we did. Yes, we did manage to open that theatre, um, and. I think we, we want to give voice to our own shows, we want to give opportunities to people that wouldn't otherwise get those opportunities, and there have been plenty of examples of those over the last five years. Um, and we wanted to be able to host the kind of shows that we would want to watch as audience members at the Brighton Fringe in the future. Um, Brighton Fringe is the biggest arts festival in England, but um, sometimes we found that wasn't providing the kind of shows that we'd want to see. And that's often as a, any form of storyteller, that, that's, that's your impetus, isn't it? So it's a fun story that you're not yet seeing. Yeah. Mm. Um, um, Roger suggested that your answer might be different or have a different shade to it. Yeah, what is, what is the Riata? What, 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 what's it, what does it deliver? Um. Yeah, I think it. I think it does serve as a platform for people that that want to, you know, like new writing, trying new works, trying something potentially experimental. And our doors open to hearing stuff like that. And you know, we've been we've had doors closed in our face before we had a premises. And you just sort of think this isn't right. You know, it's a small community, really. Acting in, in Brighton and even in London to a degree, it's it's a small world, and it's a hard industry. And I think there needs to be a bigger support network um, for actors, for writers, for, for directors, for producers. And rather than segregating people out, you know, to have a to have a platform that we have that we can say, right, no, come and talk to us, come and, you know. And I think we I think we do that, and I think we're achieving that, and I think we're getting stronger at that. And if I just pick up a thread from Andrew's question, I think I think from one of the reasons I said that you may have a different answer is that without putting words into your mouth, you have that training and you are an actress and I, I'm, I don't act, but you do. So that, that <laughs> um, Well, I, actually, I did that once, um, Fringe 97, but I have, I have promised to not do it again. Um, <laughs> but the reviews were. <laughs> <laughs> the reviews were paid for. <laughs> no. Um, but, but Lauren's, but Lauren is, is a tremendous actor, and uh, and so you you have the platform necessarily at Rialto that isn't what I was seeking. Um, but I think going further than that, we obviously know the people that run other venues, and we don't see those people as in competition. Um, we see it as a collaborative enterprise. Um, if we can propagate a theatre-going audience in, in, in the city, if we can push somebody to speak venues, ABT, other venues in Marlborough, then hopefully those people will enjoy the experience and will come back to us another day. It's certainly one of the things that we're really passionate about, cast iron, this whole idea that we're not, we're not against one another, it's a, mm. it's a genuine support network. Yeah. And if I've only got one evening of a show on Thursday night, but you've got an evening of a show on the same night, I'm, I don't see the value of screaming loudly and saying, look at my show, look at my show, don't look at theirs. I, I don't see the value in that. Apart from anything else, it's just painfully nakedly obvious, uh, you know, even on a mercenary level like that. Um, but talking about the support network and <clears throat> uh, arguably finding this venue 
for uh, to to a certain extent to sort of find a platform for your own work. Um, this is a two-part question. How difficult was that in terms of locating a venue and going through the hoops of making that viable, at least in the first instance? And loaded behind that question is if there are people in any town in this country, England, uh, or indeed worldwide, but um, in this country, with the same game plan, going, oh, well, I, I, need, I want to open a venue, is that a really horrific, stupid, naive idea that I should never do, or do you have any advice on them? Because I know that if, if this was not recorded and we had a few wines inside us, you might, you might go, fucking no, don't do it. But in a compassionate, non-alcohol-drenched podcast, <laughs> what would be your advice? My advice would be to really know why you want to do it, really make sure that there isn't something already out there that you can just piggyback on the, on, on the back of or um, enter into some kind of collaborative arrangement with because the, the financial um, implications of entering into a contract are vast and in many ways you will not understand those implications until way too late. Um, and it's not to be instituted that lightly. It, it can work for people and the people up down the country that run venues very successfully and fair play to them. You need patience, you need luck, you need hard work and lots and lots of more hard work on top of the first uh, bit of hard work. Um, and you probably need a check at some point. And that's the toughest bit. Um, I mean, that, 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 that deserves to be highlighted a bit in that if we're looking at sort of venues that provide platforms for voices that may not have voices, they're stuck at the first hurdle, aren't they? Because mm-hmm. there are financial implications of not even just the first five years, the first thing, just opening mm-hmm. the conversation. Mm-hmm. Is, that means the conversation's stopped already. Yeah. I mean, we wouldn't survive just being a theatre, hands down. No. You know, we, we've had to, um, you know, sell our soul to the devil a little bit just to... Compromise pay, yes, would be the word I'd use. To, 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 What's, to, to what pay the, the bills. devil's compromise? <laughs> <laughs> we can't... <laughs> We can't survive as just a theatre, so we, we see ourselves as a multifaceted entertainment venue. And part of that is running lovely events like weddings and um, uh, private parties. Yeah, private parties. Somebody's 50th birthday party was held very recently at a venue. Um, and there are some club nights that, frankly, are not our cup of tea, but there is a niche out there for that kind of evening. And at Rialto, we are happy to invite people to come and stay something. Um, we know that um, without funding and without significant sponsorship, that we cannot, we cannot make ends meet just providing pieces of the theatre. Uh, the one exception to that is in the month of May, mm. at the Fringe, when we can. Yeah. What? This links into sort of um, various sort of nights that are happening at the Rialto, etc. But I, I guess I want to sort of like narrow it down to the theatre itself. What for you makes a good night at the theatre? Not necessarily the type of show that it's um, a intense two-hander or burlesque or whatever, but I guess I'm talking about something a bit more 
opaque and nebulous than that? What makes a good experience at the theatre uh, equally what makes a bad experience at the theatre? Well, I can, I can start with a bad experience. No fucker turns out. <laughs> well, well, oh, well that's, that, will deserve, that will deserve a, a, a podcast conversation of an hour all of its own. Yeah. Because that's, that's a really... I'm genuinely... Even if I wasn't myself, uh, artist, director, writer, whatever I am, um, that's, a gen- that's, that's a sign that yeah. of you can have a huge amount of... Um, Advertising in every medium, There's no whatever. silver bullet. There really isn't. That's but what I found. Even as we're both saying that and both agreeing with it, there's a big voice in the back of my head clanging. Well, that, no, that's essentially wrong because there, there, there are ways that shows that with relatively unknown people get good yeah. uh, hits. Uh, there are shows that where the product is trusted and it, they don't turn up. So it can flip both mm. ways. Um, why, if we can, and I think to a certain extent we should, put aside the advertising and whether the product itself is good and place the pressure on the audience themselves, why aren't they turning up occasionally? Okay, so um, Brighton is a 365-day-a-year city. There are always competing events. And not just in terms of theatre, there's always other events competing for people's attention. Um, I believe that marketing-wise we have not fulfilled our potential at the Rialto. The broad question, why does theatre sometimes fail in writing? Um, If we knew the answer to that, we would be happier and richer. I guess there's a certain point in... We'd be at the grand. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a certain point in that... Riyadh was now five years old. That's mm. right, five years old. Um, which in itself is a certain... That's a, that's a cachet. You're not a new kid on the block. So even though, yes, admittedly, there will be people who live in Brighton, work in Brighton, who are actively interested in theatre, could potentially walk past your theatre and go, oh, hang on, what's it? I, I don't know about this. Mm. I'm aware that of many venues that mm. have been there for years that people who even live on the same street aren't aware of. But you do have five years, which means that even in an unformed sense, you're, you're, for, you're a proven quantity. You already exist. We are known. We're, we're there. We've done, I hate to come back to the fringe, but the fringe is, it tends to be the beacon for us. We've done five fringes. We're in the, we have just about we're just about finishing our curation of our sixth fringe event. Um, there are people that walk past our theatre and have not fathomed the fact that we are a theatre. We recently this year held some um, acting classes for the first time, yeah. um, and we had almost nobody that attended the acting classes ever set foot in the building previously, which staggered me. But um, that's just the way it is. So we, we, while we think we might be the centre of the known universe, <laughs> it turns out we're not. <laughs> it turns out the swathe of people out there that haven't foggiest uh, who we are. Um, and, uh, but all we can do is keep, is keep trying. We're not kids on the block any, anymore. We have been around five years. We, 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 we believe and hope that we are here to stay. Um, 
then um, we can only keep doing the things that we believe are going to help us to be successful in the future. I, we're in the last like 10, 15 minutes of this conversation and we haven't to- spoken as much as I would have liked to about the work that you yourselves produce. Um, we might have to leave that for, uh, for another conversation. Sure. Um, but to flip that about work that other people produce and, and bring to the Riato, and you spoke about not particularly because of uh, quality, but what's a good fit for the Riato mm. and what isn't. Um, if somebody is listening thinking, oh, I want to bring a piece of work to Brighton, what's going to catch your attention? Well, it's interesting, it's just kind of, it's been fresh in the mind recently because obviously we're getting um, applications through for the fringe, so obviously that's what we've been looking at, and this is it's kind of like, why have, we, why have we chosen this piece and not this piece? Why is this not right for us? Why isn't this a good fit? And again, it goes back to, I mean, it's not just about what we want to see. No, but definitely you know, not. You can't, you can't, we can't be like that. We'd, 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 we'd be, it'd be a nightmare. Um, and I guess also if but you I are... think it goes back to risk as well. I think it's like, oh, this looks edgy. This has got something about, this is kind of simmering for me, personally. And I just think... I mean, I can, I can give an answer. Uh, I may give a different answer to you, which is I think that sometimes we get a sense of people that they have a passion about a show. Some, and that's important, but that's not the only thing. Um, sometimes we understand that pe- people say, yes, we believe that this show is going to be a great fit for your theatre because we've looked at the culture of your, of your theatre, we've looked at the physical aspects of the building um, and, and we believe that we want to be part of that we want our story to be told at that venue. Um, in some cases, people apply to us and the, just in terms of the physical aspect of, of their show, it's just not going to work. Yeah. Our venue, and we know that, and we, and we sadly have to refer them to our people. Um, and we learned that the first year, you know, we, yeah. we hosted a, a fantastic show, it's about tap dancing. It we won, are the wrong venue for that. It won two awards, mm-hmm. it won two awards, but if you weren't in, in the first three rows, you couldn't see it. And I guess there's also a banal, particularly with the fringe, that if you've already um, selected two plays that are about the lived experience of being a clown, then you probably aren't going to yeah. pick the next four plays that are about clowning. Well, it's very interesting you say that, Andrew. We, we've, we've got two plays that scheduled, sorry, two pieces that are scheduled this year, uh, sorry, next year at Fringe, about artificial intelligence, with almost a black mirror aspect to them. And we've just received another application just this morning from something that sounds a bit similar. So we're thinking, could we make this a theme of next year's fringe, or that's are we just going to exhaust people's patience with yeah. that with that genre? That's the that's that's the conversation that we're trying to have. There could be a ticket deal on by <laughs> all the tickets played. You're hired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> always say, always say. Yeah. Um, this is uh, again um, a somewhat heavy question to um, to move towards with regards to what fringe theatre is. Um, for both yourselves, but um, on a wider scale, other fringe theatres um, up and down the country, what does or what should fringe theatre promise 
to its audiences that you wouldn't get from commercial or regular theatre? And also, what do we think at the moment fringe theatre is breaking the promises of? What isn't it delivering that, that it should do? I, I believe there are two aspects to that. And I'm pretty sure Lauren's going to have a different answer, but I'll leave that to her in a second. <laughs> we just um, found the title of this week's episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, think that, I think that there is a swathe of work out there, which is um, people bringing voice to um, a known author, Arthur Miller we've spoken about, it, uh, David Mamet, um, Pinter, etc. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. This, this is a voice that the Fringe can offer because because the festivals themselves will not curate that, that kind of work. Um, but the other aspect of the fringe is something edgy, something new, something, something very different. Um, and otherwise those people would not get their voice. And you have to remember what, what fringe means and where it came from. Edinburgh being the first fringe, as I understand, it, there was an Edinburgh festival, there was a, there were a group of actors on the outskirts of that that couldn't get a gig, so they started a fringe, and the whole concept has spread seven two hundred years later. But I mean, over to you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting you're saying about the commer- like the sort of more mainstream commercial theatre, and then you've got the fringe. And I think I think there needs to be some emphasis on the audience here, on the audiences as well, because they need to. A lot of the time, I think they need to manage their expectations at the fringe, especially because if. If I'm paying £40 for a ticket to go and see a mainstream show and it wasn't very good, and for various reasons, not because I didn't, you know, just because it was just a bit naff um, and other people thought the same, I think we would, our expectation was that it was, hold on, I've just spent £40 here and that's not a very good show for various reasons. It actually looked quite amateur or whatever. And then if I'm paying £8 to go and see a fringe show and it was very good, and then I spent eight pounds to go and see another fringe show. It was terrible. You've got to be more accepting over the fringe. I think because people are expe- more experimental, people are exploring, they are r- writing new things, they are daring to try stuff in front of a load of strangers. And there is a risk factor for the writers, for the performers, and the audience. I think just need, and a lot of them do. I'm not. This isn't, this isn't everybody, but as a whole, fringe audiences I think need to appreciate that more. It's permission to fail. Permission to fail. Exactly that. I guess there's a sense of the flip of that is both a commercial mainstream and fringe theatre. The ideal is that you can see a show is actively terrible for whatever reason, but a complacent show is more offensive. Completely. An, an, an arrogant show. You I know. agree more. Yeah. You'd think that that would be where I'd end it, because I like being not agreeing with more, but... Uh, <laughs> But what's coming up for the Riato Theatre? What, uh, what, what should we um, check out? The Pretty Villain, uh, our company, are producing two shows next year at the Fringe. Um, we did five this year, but um, just ran ourselves ragged with those five. Um, Lauren's writing a new piece um, and she's going to perform in it. Um, and I'm directing a David Hare piece of theatre. Um, and that's going to be our offering next year. We've done 25 so far. We're very proud of that. Um, and here's the next 25. What you were talking about ra- running yourself ragged, which is definitely a line I'm happy saying and um, being recorded. Um, what 
stuff are you watching, are you reading, are you listening to at the moment when you do have a bit of spare time that you would recommend to us? Are you Netflixing it out or are you podcasting or did you see a show that you'd particularly want to rave about? I am a voracious reader and um, I know particular genre um, and um, uh, what have I read recently that I'm confused about? Um, nothing particular, she's the truth. But t- television, um, I, I, I found some of the Black Mirror very interesting. Uh, conceptually, I found a couple of them, from a performance perspective, incredibly interesting and moving. Um, I greatly enjoy some of the Inside Number Nine, but by no means all. Um, in terms of theatre, um, the best thing we saw at, sorry, the best thing I saw at Edinburgh um, was a piece of physical theatre, um, which was one of the greatest piece, piece of uh, physical theatre I've ever seen called The Sense Maker, who've been touring all over Europe, um, and we have invited them to visit next year at Fringe, and they are coming. In fact, we give an award now at Edinburgh. Um, and uh, they are the recipient of this year's award. Excellent. So we, we, we are paying for their entry at the Brighton Fringe. Um, and in fact, we are attending the Alba Fringe in Italy, the inaugural Alba Fringe, uh, where we're representing Brighton Fringe. Excellent. In Hello, and what, you, what have you been reading, watching, or listening to that you want to shout out about? Oh, um. Not a great deal is the answer, actually. I've been doing a lot of writing for my play for next year, so that's been Can you kind talk of about your play for next year? Or um, at the point of uh, the transmission, the, your play for this year? It's, it's, a, it's a two-hander. Um, it's uh, two females. Um, one is one plays the mistress and one plays the, the wife, and it's their first meeting about the husband in question, and it goes from there, and there's a bit of a twist at the end. Um, how much of that can just go from your fingertips to the page or to couch it in the question that the, the, the bigger question we're asking how much of it can you um, drench from existing material or existing paintings or dramas or is it entirely all in your head um I'm writing it like I'm watching it yeah. So I haven't really looked at the sort of art or anything. I mean, that's not to say that won't happen. Yeah. But right now, it's just it's kind of just thrashing it out, yeah. and you know, but then I'm kind of watching it in my head, and then ah no, and then that's how I kind of work. I think, when, when I write, well, yeah, when either of you are writing or prepping or musing or staring blankly out of space, we're here at the Jury's Inn waterfront where we're. Got a window seat looking at the um, the great great sea crashing in. Uh, is there a place in Brighton? I know you have the Riato Bar itself, but is there another place in Brighton where you would choose to sort of hang out and sketch or write out ideas, either of you? When I've written, it's been it's been at three in the morning, so it's generally at a computer. Yeah. Um, but Lauren works in a different way. Yeah, I think for me with with writing, I, I have to be in my own sanctuary at home otherwise I just get too distracted 
And my final question is, um, there are many people who have you know, had an idea uh, for an invention, or a book, or a film, or you know, like left-handed coffee cups, or whatever, and they, don't, they, they have this idea when they're eight, and they didn't do anything about it, and then somebody invents the Tesla car, or something, and then somebody else makes lots of money off their idea. Did either of you ever have an idea for an invention, or a play, or a book, that, or a film, that you didn't do anything about, but somebody else had the same idea and has got your money. I have had several ideas for plays or books, several, um, a couple of which have seen a little bit of the light of day, but are half-baked um, at best. Um, but that's not to say that they won't become baked at some point. Yeah. But they're really good, it's another question. Has anyone done anything so far that, that is, is any of those ideas? No so far. That, 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 this, this then is your, your gauntlet in the sand, which is a mixed metaphor I realise. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, get those, get those ideas baked. Bring them through to fruition. Oh, oh, no, we, we've got to stop these torturous metaphors. Lauren, <laughs> lo, lo, save us. Yeah. Oh, probably like a, a, a lip plumping lipstick. Oh, okay. And that's been executed now. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, 25 productions of Pretty Villain, five years of Riato Theatre. Uh, here's the next five and the next 25. Uh, Lauren Barnfield and Roger Kelly, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, thank guys. you very Appreciate much. You. Thank you. This has been the Cast Iron Theatre Podcast. Presented by Andrew Allen. Produced by Michelle Donkin. Music is Chapstick by Everett Armand. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and our website is castironbrighton.com. Subscribe to us and rate us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening.